Hello everyone and welcome to our cinematic universe where nice. we talk about films. Well, I'm going to do a different version of that just so that we've got the... But I've got that one in the bag. So, hello everyone and welcome to our cinematic universe, a conversation between Byron and Gabe where we talk about our favourite films, franchises, what's happened to them, how they've gone uphill, how they've gone downhill... How directors have been fired, how directors have been replaced, how directors have held on to movies longer than maybe they should have. This is a podcast about franchises. It's a podcast about series, sagas, long-lasting, episodic content, and its place in our modern society. Now, Gabe, yes. we're both big fans of movies, wouldn't you say? So much that I want to make some. Yes, I know. Even after watching the agony that directors go through from... George Miller on Fury Road to George Lucas on Star Wars Episode 4. We hear horror stories about how directors suffer and slave and never sleep to make their creations happen. Yet for some reason, you and I still want to do it. And we have an interesting friendship. You and I met here at the Australian National Film School, where I don't believe we were friends until the second year, when a movie brought us together that we will address later on this very series. It's a very special movie. Very dear to our hearts, this movie. Very dear to our hearts. So, the reason we thought we should start this podcast is because we love watching movies through the franchise from beginning to end and discussing how the franchise changes, wouldn't you say? I think mostly it's because we talk a lot about films. Yes, that's definitely true. It gets very interesting at times. It gets interesting because we are usually unable to just talk about the films. We go off on lots of tangents about other films. Yes. Like, if you're looking for a deep dive analysis that's 20 hours long, assessing every scene, this isn't the podcast you're looking for. We're more interested in the grand scale and scope of what these franchises say, how the movies themselves are, and what changes across the length of the franchise. And what changes from society and where people are at. Yeah, when I mean, made. we're looking at 20 years on from the movie that we're going to discuss today. It's been 20 years since uh, a certain movie called The Phantom Menace captivated audiences with its exceptional quality of writing, timeless visual effects, brilliant, clear storytelling. And very amazing characters. You incredible characters. characters. You forget how good they are, is what you mean? <laughs> Yes, that's right. (laughs) But now you get to revisit them 20 years later. And boy, is it a joy to revisit them. So one of the reasons... Okay, we're just going to get cut to the chase. This is the first episode. This is our first series that we're going to be talking about. One of the biggest franchises in film history. At one time, the highest grossing franchise in film history. Star Wars. And controversially, we're going to talk through it in the order of the saga. As George Lucas intended it. So we're starting with episode one then episode two, Attack of the Clones, then episode three, Revenge of the Sith, and then Star Wars, the original Star Wars. It is not called A New Hope. It is Star Wars. Then we have The Empire Strikes Back. You forgot about Solo and Rogue One. Oh, sorry, you're right. (laughs) Well, to be fair, the world forgot about Solo. I love Rogue One. Um, So yeah, we're doing episode one, episode two, episode three, Solo, Rogue One, Star Wars... The Empire Strikes Back, (laughs) Return of the Jedi. So five, just say six. Yep. And then we are touching on The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. And what you will realize with the date that we're putting this out is that we are leading you along what we like to call the road to the rise of Skywalker. 
which will be dropping in 10 weeks, exactly 10 weeks from when we launched this podcast. We are taking you through the franchise with us, anticipating the release of what will be, I think we agree, the final Star Wars film. They will never make another one. Possibly. They will never make another one. Disney Plus is coming out, possibly. Well, you had this crazy theory that this might be the last one we're able to see in theatres. Do you really yes, think that's true? Theaters. There's no way. They are, Disney owns AMC. They're going to need to put something in theatres. I don't think we need to talk about this in here right now. This Why not? Is, this is the intro. I know this is the intro, but we're kind of segueing from the intro to the podcast, I think. No, like Road to uh, Rise of Skywalker. Hope you guys enjoy talking. Uh, oh, okay. Talking sorry. About it. I'm definitely leaving. I, this I hope in. you guys. Okay, you're right. t- talking about it. Here we go. I hope you like our intro. Well, guys, I hope you enjoy Road to the Rise of Skywalker, Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Here we go. I've got a bad feeling about this. You I came hope- in that thing. I- <laughs> what-, <laughs> what else? What else can you think of? Um, the wars are closing in. We got to get started. Oh no. Now there's two of them. That's not a podcast. This is not the podcast you're looking for. Help me, Gabriel. You're my only hope. Okay. I hope you guys enjoy our talk about Phantom Menace. <laughs> and I uh, hope you enjoy the series. Oh wait, no. Right. We've, got to, we've got to talk about how this is the first season. We're doing Star Wars. It's our first big franchise. Okay. We're going to be touching on these films, talking about their place in society, their place in history, how they've aged. So I hope you guys enjoy our first episode on The Phantom Menace. You didn't mention that it wasn't going to be other franchises. Ah, we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. Welcome to The Phantom Menace. <laughs> okay, do we need to cut that? Do we need to re-record that? Do you think we're good? No, do you think everyone's, good. Do you think anyone's still listening? <laughs> Welcome to our podcast on The Phantom Menace. Now, Gabe. Yes. <laughs> I have a question for you, Baron. Yes. A very important question. Yes. So, um, weeks, ago, weeks ago, you yes. told me that uh, The Phantom Menace is the best prequel. To be fair... And, and, after watching it, mm. how can you still say the same thing? Well, we haven't watched Clones or Sith yet. Now, to be fair, I was saying that from a perspective of ignorance, because it's been a good couple of years since I last watched The Phantom Menace. I asked you five minutes ago, do you still think it's the best prequel? I do. And you said yes. I do. To me, Why? To me, the thing that doesn't work about the... Sequels, And this is something we're going to get into because to me it feels like George very much tried to respond to the criticism of each film and in some ways overcorrected. And we'll talk about that with Attack of the Clones once we lay out everything that's wrong with this movie. But the thing to me is that episode one has absolutely no emotional arc with any of its characters. And episodes two and three deal in such broad and strained emotion that it makes them almost unwatchable to me. 
Like the scene with Anakin talking about sand in episode two, the scene where he's um, being a whiny little brat to Obi-Wan because he doesn't get to love Padme, the scene where he's telling her about how he murdered all the children and the women of the Tusken Raiders, and then all the scenes in episode three where he's like, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. And it's just so overwrought. God, it makes it really hard to watch. Whereas in Phantom, it's just boring, but at least there's a little bit of momentum that isn't grounded in the actors being, like, nuts. Do you get what I'm saying? I, I'm basically saying that you've got to pick one of two evils with the George Lucas prequels, which is you either have spectacular-looking but completely emotionally vacuous characters in Phantom Menace, or you have incredibly over-simplified emotional high stakes with Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And I think... Those two films... Like, put it this way. George Lucas clearly wasn't feeling confident enough to direct an emotional arc in Phantom. And he's feeling way too confident about directing a love story in the second and a tragic fall in the third. That's my perspective. And I totally get why you can disagree with me. I just think the movie's a lot worse itself. Phantom Menace? Yes. It's... 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 It's not so much that it's emotionless... It's more like, it's never clear what's going on. The characters infer a lot of stuff. And there is no threat. There is no villain. Like, Viceroy is the villain, I guess. Well, that's and one of the nuts things. Darth that Maul the majority of the time you spend with your villain of the film is them talking to a hologram of another villain that you only see in person once. I mean, I guess Darth Maul is on it, but... He but doesn't do anything. He doesn't have a he doesn't have a personality. He doesn't have a presence. Like the one bit of personality that you and I like is when he's having the duel with Qui Gon and Obi Wan, and he's like snarling and he's aggressive, and he's the only guy who kind of has emotion. I mean, one of the big ironic things we're going to get into with this is that George Lucas essentially created a series of films about why suppressing emotion is bad and will lead to ruin, and then these films are made in the most emotionless, drab, sterile way possible. But anyway, let's give let's give the viewers some background. So you and I are both um, '90s kids. We both grew up with Star Wars. I would argue I that didn't. you didn't grow up with Star Wars. I, I grew up maybe prequels, but I never saw original. All right, I give never me saw your the... background on Star Wars because I don't. I, know I saw Phantom Menace in theaters. Okay, how old were you? So I was six, five. You're five years old. I'm five years old. Yep, really liked it. Yeah, as a kid, that's fine. Um, I was five years old. Really liked it. Uh, boring bits were boring. Yep. Like Coruscant, it's pretty boring, right? And I and then I saw the next prequel movies. Yes. No, I actually think I saw the OT before Attack of Clones. No, before Revenge. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that I, I probably explains a lot that you would have been very confused about in Revenge if that was the ending of the story. I I, I always um. But after seeing the OTA, always Empire was my favorite. Oh yeah, I mean once you so see it, if, it's even hard though, to think of anything else. Even though I might have been like ten or something, you knew I still liked it better. Yeah. So I didn't grow up with the OT. Mm. I was the prequels, and watching them now is like laughable. So yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, I was laughing the whole time we were watching it. And you watch them in Spain, I'm assuming. Yeah, in Spanish, yeah. which makes Jack Lloyd's acting a lot better because it's not his I voice. Bet. 
I bet. So that's what happens a lot with dubbing in Spanish is that they put more emotion in there because George like, Lucas they, can't direct them. But like in other films as well, like I, I remember watching the happening. Right. Is and, Mark Wahlberg good? And it doesn't. It didn't. It wasn't that bad. And then I watched it in English, and I'm like, Jesus, calling. Can you give Wally. me like your best impression of Mark Wahlberg doing the murder me in my sleep? What? No. What? No. Give me your best Spanish interpretation. I don't know where I'm going in Spanish. Yeah, just say what? No. Okay. No. No, 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 no. How did the guy do it in I Spanish? Don't remember. Make I just told you. What I was one remember. moment in the happening that you remember being better because it was Spanish? I, I just when, when people talk about the happening, they always mention the the acting. Can what, somebody just give me a goddamn second? And when Mark Wahlberg starts singing, like to to, to, to show that he's yeah, human, yeah. it's like what? Uh, but whenever oh, whenever yeah. I thought of that film before I watched it in English, I thought of how stupid the idea was. I didn't remember the acting being bad, and then uh, the acting in English is just that's pretty funny. Jesus, I mean, you know about how the voice actor for Homer Simpson in Chile is like this incredibly famous guy. Mm. Yeah, I can't remember his name now, but yeah, no, um, it's funny how that translation can help. I remember, so I um, I was only about four years old when um, Phantom Menace came out, so I did not see it in theaters. Um, I saw Attack of the Clones was my first one in theaters, but by that point, my parents had showed me the original trilogy. They were very keen to show them to me early, and I saw them on a tiny VHS uh, TV. It was one of those fancy kind of VHS in one TVs, where oh. it was like a LCD screen. It would have been about 12 inches wide. Um, and yeah, I watched the original trilogy on VHS, and of all the movies that have made the biggest impression on me, like if you were to name the three movies that have made the biggest impression on you, they would be, I'm guessing, Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. Star Wars. No. No, okay, name them. Name name three that you'd like offhand. Just three that you can't think about becoming a filmmaker without those three. Or enjoying films without those three. Like they're your they're your foundation. This is probably um Jurassic Park. Yep. Uh it wouldn't be any hope. It would be Empire. Yep, that's fine. And probably the third one, uh Justin One, yeah, that's right. I remember you watched 2001 quite young. I was pretty young. I was only 12, I think, when I watched I, I, it. I think time. I saw... Yeah. Oh, no, I, uh, this is a funny story about 2001. Yeah, yeah, tell me. Is that it was right after I saw Star Wars, Yeah. my dad told me, like, I was 10. You've got to watch like the said, real sci-fi. I said, yeah, like, I said earlier, I, I was 10 when I watched the original cut to Star Wars. And my dad said, oh, you want to watch Star... Uh, like, you want to watch sci-fi movies? Like, I wanted him to buy me Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Like, copy that. <laughs> Right, a copy of Star Wars, and he said, "Do you want to? Do you know want to know which like it's a real sci-fi film? Like it's really exciting." Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, which one?" He said, "Oh, it's just in one," and he showed it to me, and I freaking loved it. it oh, was that's so awesome! Cool. How old were you? Except the ending when he saw the light stuff, I fell oh, asleep you... in that part. Yeah, but, yeah, it's yeah. Pretty I was wild. like ten, so that's cool, man. That's wicked. I actually really liked it. It was it's funny, but then you think that was about your dad. You think about it, and like you and Chris, it's not Nolan. a movie. Yeah. It's not a movie that kids like no no they shouldn't but you and Christopher Nolan after watching Star Wars like after right after watching Star Wars yeah. watch it's one it's like do you know that do you know that story about Chris Nolan about how after Star Wars came out his yeah. dad took him to the Leicester Square Theatre which is like one of the biggest theatres in England to see 2001 and he loved it and then ironically Interstellar was the last film that played at the Leicester Square Theatre before it got closed down hmm. which is quite bizarre and sad Anyway, so, yeah, so Jurassic Park, Star Wars... What was the third one? 2001. Yeah, 2001. Like, I'm pretty close to that. I'd say that mine would be Terminator, E.T., and Empire would be my three. E.T.? Yeah, 100%. Love E.T. 
That film wait, made em- a huge impression on me as wait, a kid. Wait, Empire? Yeah. I think you like... I love... Okay, I like New Hope a lot more now, but I think Empire made the biggest impression on me as a child. Yeah. Because New Hope... Because Empire is so dark and so memorable in its imagery. Like, when Luke is in the tree, I remember it terrifying me as a kid. Like, I loved NeverEnding Story, E.T., um, Empire... I loved things like The Goonies. I love things that kind of scared you as a child in a very fantastical way. And it was really interesting to me to kind of look back on those movies and see how they've made an impression on my work now. So yeah, we're both filmmakers and we come at this from a filmmaker's background. We both study film. We This, this isn't a movie critics podcast. This is a podcast about studying the films, how we view them as fans, and how we view the craft of the film and the way that it does work and doesn't. So my background with Phantom Menace is my brother loved it. My brother saw it when he was about nine years old. So he was the perfect age. He loved it. He had the Phantom Menace book. He had the toys. I had a little Darth Maul that uh, I inherited I from toys. him that I played with. I, I, I had the head of uh, Jar Jar. You had the head of Jar Jar? Which could open and there was like stuff to think it and do inside. It was cool. I had a Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Um, I put Racer, a small part Racer, which I really liked. Yeah, I had um, Luke Speeder, but it was Phantom Menace branded, which was kind of weird. Because you see it in that one bit of the hologram. <laughs> yeah, it was an excuse to excuse to bring him out, I guess, for George. But um, it's probably like two millions itself. Okay, that leads us into a very important question, which is why did George Lucas, after I want to remind you, this is the first film he directs since he directed A New Hope. Now he has gone back in '97 and he has digitally remastered the films and he has done what people now know as the special editions, which is where he has cut scenes put scenes back in, added digital effects, cleaned up bits of the image, but also, I think all fans would agree, made some egregious changes to the films. And you and I are going to watch A New Hope, the special edition, mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Empire, which has the least tampering, but I still think makes some terrible changes. And Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. which might have the worst changes of all. Yep. Yep. Now, George Lucas finishes the Star Wars franchise in 83 with Return of the Jedi. Indiana Jones finishes in 87, 87. his last, last Crusade? Yeah. So, George Lucas is pretty quiet in the years between. I mean, he works on... 89. Um, Never mind. 89? Yeah, wow. We were 87 off. must be Temple of Doom. Must be. So, he does Howard the Duck, he produces. Willow is in the middle of the 80s. I don't remember when. It's only about 90s. Well, you think Willow's 90s? Let's it see. It might be 80s. I mean, I'm the one that watched that one. Val Kilmer was at the height of his power, so it may well be 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see when George Lucas released Willow, the greatest movie ever made by a director. No, he he didn't direct it. I know. Ron Howard directed it. And that leads into Phantom Menace again, because you know the story about Ron Howard. He got offered the trilogy. George Lucas went to him. He first went to Spielberg. Then he went to Ron Howard. And both of them said, I think both of them kind of heard about what happened to Richard Marquand on Return of the Jedi. And were like... No, this is yours. This is your thing that you want control over. It's interesting what happened a couple of years later. Yeah, that's the thing that's really nuts, is that Ron Howard takes over Solo after another very visionary director gets fired. And one of the things we want to talk about with this podcast... No, fired. They were fired. They were fired. One of the things that we want to talk about on this podcast is how Star Wars goes from being one man's creation, one single author who comes up with this absolutely bonkers idea and gets a whole bunch of people behind it people like Brian De Palma Marsha Lucas Spielberg to a degree Gary Kurtz all make contributions Harrison Ford all make contributions to make it the film that it is and it is released against huge huge um, opinions that it's going to flop 
that it's gone over budget, that it's not going to be um, successful except with a very niche market. And it becomes the biggest film of all time. It's nuts. George Lucas goes from being this people that this kind of weird kid making films like American Graffiti and THX to being the hottest director on earth. And as Brian De Palma infamously says, when George Lucas makes Star Wars, the world loses a great filmmaker, which is yeah. a saying that I kind of disagree with. You, we'll you, love, you love that quote. I think Brian De Palma's grossly over-exaggerating how little George Lucas was able to do on the other Star Wars films in terms of innovate both story-wise and effects-wise. I think it was overestimating how good George Lucas was as a director. Mate, you haven't seen THX, have you? And you haven't seen American Graffiti? Nah. Both of those films are masterpieces, and ironically, American Graffiti is praised for its naturalistic performances and brilliant dialogue. And it's not solely written by Lucas, which might be one of the reasons. But yeah, American Graffiti is great. THX is great. Indiana Jones is great. Like, George Lucas is responsible. Like, I want to start out this podcast by saying how grateful I am that George Lucas made these films that I honestly think, if not for Star Wars, you and I might not have been as enthusiastic about getting into film. Yeah, most likely. I think that's very likely. I I have the theory that if there was no Star Wars, there wouldn't be... A lot of things in society will be really different. Massively different. You, we really can't different. Ima- we can't it was imagine. So, it was so big. We can't imagine how different they'd be. I mean, Star Wars, for better or worse, built the film industry into this giant bubble that now feels like it's on the brink of collapse again. Brink of popping? The brink Pop. of popping. Bubble? Bubbles don't collapse. They do pop. You're, yeah. you're correct. I, I didn't think we were doing a literal metaphor here. I, th- I thought you were going for the really obvious metaphor. Burst is the word I was searching for. A bubble of the film industry that's about to burst. So George Lucas comes out of retirement in 1993 saying, I'm going to write three new Star Wars movies. Then in 97, I believe, production begins. I, I, I do believe he always said after... Uh, A New Hope comes out. No, after Re- Return of the Jedi. Yes. I'm pretty sure he always said he wanted to tell a prequel story. Yes. But he never, like, he never took it upon himself to make it he never like was trying to he was never trying to make it until the 90s 93 when yeah when Jurassic Park comes out and one of the big things that you and I kind of agree is that George Lucas and he said as much wanted to make these films in part to experiment with new digital technology now I've just looked up Ron Howard's filmography from when George Lucas offered it to him And he had just done Far and Away, which is a terrible film. The Paper, which I've never seen. He's coming hot off Apollo 13, though. So he's done, like, a really big film, probably around the time George Lucas has offered it to him. And then he does Ransom, which is a pretty decent film, and Ed TV, which is a film that nobody remembers. But then he goes on to do How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is okay. Massive hit. Then A Beautiful Mind and The Missing. Like, it's if he had done Star Wars, it would have held him over from doing some of his more Oscar-y movies. So, good on Ron Howard for turning it down. I think it was a smart decision. Good on Spielberg for turning it down. We would have lost some really good Spielberg films or they would have been delayed. Who would this have was known? George Lucas's movie. Yeah. Who could know? We maybe have lost a couple of great Oscar films because he worked in Solo. Can you imagine <laughs> if they did like a Schindler's List um, uh, Last Temptation of Christ swap where like George Lucas directed A Beautiful Mind? And Ron Howard directed Attack of the Clones. Like, imagine... Yeah, if, yeah that would have been hilarious. Oh, mate. Uh, it would have made Star Wars better. Can you imagine... Well, and after, after Solo, I don't know. Can you imagine George Lucas's Frost Nixon, where he used digital technology to computer-generate Richard Nixon for the entire film? 
And it looks like Jar Jar. <laughs> it just looks like Jar Jar the whole time. That would have been pretty funny. Um, so The Phantom Menace, released in 1999, the most anticipated movie, it's fair to say, of all time. And as we were talking about earlier, 1999, the best year for movies. People say 94. In your opinion. In my opinion. I'm going to read you 94, which people say is almost universally the best year for movies. So 94, we get Pulp Fiction, The Lion King, Forrest Gump, Shawshank, Four Reddings and a Funeral, Speed, Natural Born Killers, The Crow, Interview with the Vampire, True Lies, Ace Ventura. Oh, you missed Dumb and Dumber. I, I purposefully said That's a Dumb kind of funny film. Heavenly Creatures, Peter Jackson's film he makes before Lord of the Rings, which gets him his first Oscar nomination. Great film. Clear and Present Danger, starring Harrison Ford. Legends of the Fall, Ed Wood. Like, it's a good year. There's some really good films on here. I'm going to read you 1999. The first one that comes to mind is Fight Club, but also The Matrix, Blair Witch Project, The Sixth Sense, Being John Malkovich, American Beauty, Three Kings, Office Space, Eyes Wide Shut, American Pie, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Boys Don't Cry, Notting Hill, The Insider, Toy Story 2, The Mummy, Magnolia, The Green Mile, Iron Giant, Election, 10 Things I Hate About You, Galaxy Quest, South Park. This is an amazing year for movies, bringing out the dead. This is an incredible year. And right at the end of it, or in the middle of it, because this movie came out in June, what do you get? Fucking Star Wars, baby. Yeah. Star Wars is back. A film that And bigger drugs, than ever. A movie that drugs the whole year down a bit. Or elevates it, depending on where you're coming from. Uh, like drugs it down. Say what you will about Phantom Menace. I feel like Phantom Menace in so many ways typifies the kind of movie that Hollywood is still obsessed with making. Big CG driven event films. Like, you look at Aquaman, which came out last year, and you can see which how Phantom you love. Is. Don't forget I to mention that. I really like Aquaman. Uh, to be honest, Aquaman does a much better job at its world building and setting up its characters than Phantom Menace. I don't think you'd argue that. It has well, an actual Phantom emotional Menace, Phantom Menace might be the worst example of setting up a world and characters. So. Well, it has a shorthand in the Star Wars universe, but even so, it does a pretty poor job of setting a sense but, but- of place... And status and stakes the for only, the universe. The only place that we know... Tatooine. Is Tatooine. And we know what Jedi's are kind of are. But in the film, that's completely different to what... Yeah, the way the Jedi's are introduced is nuts. Yeah, and all the new places, all the politics and all that, it's all completely different to what it was originally. So it does a really bad job setting up pretty much everything. <laughs> So the movie comes out and it's very mixed. Roger Ebert gives it three and a half stars, but most Jesus of the Christ. Fans, yeah, have you read that review? Like, I love Roger Ebert, but that review is nuts. That oh, review, Roger Ebert sometimes. He, he thinks the movie stuff. is great for kids. He thinks the movie's great for the whole family. He thinks the kids it's love it. Probably this. great for kids. I mean, he gave Revenge of the Sith three and a half stars too. So yeah, he has. Sometimes he got it wrong. He gave the raid one star, and you know he thought video games were a meaningless art form. So you know, we love you, Roger Ebert. We're sad that you're dead, but you were wrong about The Phantom Menace. Gabe, I defended this film earlier saying it's the best prequel. I want to make it clear. I really don't like this movie. And I think it does a huge amount, as we've discussed, to destroy, not just damage, but destroy the mythology of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And as I said to you, and as I was speaking to another person who we've interviewed for a bonus episode of this podcast, which will drop any day now... It destroys the magic of Star Wars. Like, Star Wars is swords and sandals, sorcery, like, dungeons and dragons. Like, it's nerdy, mythic, fantasy stuff through a science fiction lens. Ah. 
It is. I don't like, think it's, it's about that. wizards. It's about space wizards. Well, they use the word wizard and stuff like that. I don't think it's. I don't think it's Lord of the Rings in space. No. I do think it's uh, people demolish like the people put down the sci-fi in Star Wars. Even though it's not very explained, it's still. A lot of sci-fi stuff. A lot it? of people argue Star Wars is a Western, which looking at A New Hope, I can absolutely see why people think oh, that. Oh, I disagree. With Empire, it becomes something much bigger. Yeah. And Star Wars, Star Wars is sort of its own genre. I mean, that's why you can't have one Star Wars episode be purely about a piece of technology gone wrong, like you do with Star Trek. Star Wars yeah. is much more limited, I'd argue, in the kind of stories you can tell because they have to be so big and so grand and so rooted in mythology. Well, I, I honestly think it's... Because it's in the in the name, you can't have That's true. war. You can't have Star Wars film without the war. Whereas aspect. Star and Trek, war, you just have to go from one place to another by the end of the episode. Star Trek, Trek, it's like it's about discovery. Yeah, it's about like, going on an adventure through space and seeing who you find along the way. I mean, you I are mean, a much bigger Trekkie than me. Like you can have a whole episode that is not about. Um, going anywhere yeah there is a bit there's a lot of episodes that it's not about going to a planet it's about oh yeah it's, it's like just something happens about a ship. disease that breaks out on the ship and yeah, it's great. It's, yeah it's about new things going on I mean Star Trek is able to delve into much more interesting stories and that's one of its big advantages like one of my favourite episodes of Star Trek ever and I'm not a Trekkie but in I think season yeah. 3 episode 10 I of Voyager the original series of Voyager well, I haven't seen Voyager. You haven't oh. seen Voyager? No. Voyager's great. Why would I? I Janeway rules. There's a character called no. Neelix who's part of this particular species and one of his species invented a weapon that is obviously an allegory for the atom bomb and it's about the creator of that weapon on his deathbed asking to be forgiven for being an inventor who was trying to finish a war. And it's all about dealing with like the legacy of Robert Oppenheimer and what he created and it's interesting you can't do stuff like that in Star Wars you don't have nah. the real world it's a long time ago in a galaxy far far away and one of the things that's interesting about Star Wars is it really isn't an allegory for anything like George likes to say it's about the Vietnam War and, and I heard it's uh, World War 2 yeah he uses iconography from World War 2 and you can see it as a fight against the Soviet Union because the Cold War is heating up through Star Wars like, by the time that Return of the Jedi ends, the Cold War is sort of winding down. And it can sort of be seen as the fall of that, you know, what Reagan literally calls the evil empire. Like, Reagan uses the language of Star Wars. This is what we mean about how Star Wars is so ubiquitous in culture, is that by the time that Star Wars is ending, Ronald Reagan is referring to his, you know, military space program as the Star Wars program. If you hear the word empire, mm. you immediately think evil? Yeah, completely. Because of Star Wars. Because but of Star empire, Wars. really, it's not... It, it didn't used to be a term associated Empire with Empire is not the meaning of evil. Empire is just the ruling system. Yes, it's a ruling system that usually has smaller systems under its thumb. And it's interesting how Star Wars has shaped our language in so many ways. Now, talking about Phantom Menace, we just watched it. I want you to recount the plot to me as best as you can. So, um, so there is some taxes, <laughs> right? This is the first point that I wrote down. This is a film about taxation. It's, um... Sorry. It's... Th th there is taxes in the crawl. It's the first sentence. It's the, the tax first sentence. No, second sentence. The taxation of trade routes Obi-Wan and, and well, two the Jedi Knights have been sent They're to nice. deal with these blockades around the planet of Naboo. Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. 
the taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. Yeah, in dispute. It's not like they're being taxed. It's not like there's a war. They are in dispute. They're fighting over who gets tax money. Who gets taxed more? Like, this is bizarre. Also, I I just want to mention, it's definitely not related to anything. George Lucas self-produces these movies and Fox uh, distributes them. So George Lucas has a very financial investment, a very large financial investment in these movies. Don't know why I mentioned that. It's just interesting that a movie that's one of the biggest movies of all time, made by one guy who's trying to make a profit, is complaining about taxes. I don't know. Maybe, you know, George was pulling from something that he personally had been through. Maybe he was trying to brainwash kids. It's weird that he didn't make these movies about a man having to pay alimony to his wife, who... Maybe had a huge hand in creating. I don't know he's talking about. Of, I definitely don't know what I'm talking about. Well, what are you talking about? I don't know. I definitely maybe don't. Wanna... Should, maybe this is something we should talk about in uh, Off Mic. A New Hope. Oh, when we watch the special edition, have you? Do you know about the editor credit? Oh yes, it's not there. I know. Oh man, that is something that Hayden Christensen is not in the credit. Return of the Jedi. Yeah, it's not the credit. He's uncredited as Anakin. Yeah. No, he's credited. No, we, I looked for it. I looked for it. I'm pretty sure he Last is. time I saw it, I looked for it. Okay. Anyways. Anyway. So, after the last the two Jedi Knights... Yes. Um, ...are attacked with really obvious white poison, they fight some droids. Yep. They try to get to the Beast Roy. I don't know. Viceroy. Viceroy. I don't know Who has why. the worst security ever, apparently. I don't know why they're just going this straight. They don't talk about it. They just go there and and slack yeah, into they, the door with a lightsaber. Well, I mean, he did try to poison them, so they're probably just like, excuse me, we came to negotiate. Can we just please sit down? We were really enjoying the tea you gave us. Can we just finish our tea, have a chat? We can clear this all up. I'm sorry for They the just th- want to go home. I'm sorry for the door. I'll pay for it. <laughs> I think this movie is much better when viewed through the lens of two guys who really want to go home. They just want this job to be over because they are so emotionless. Like, I want to I just talk about the performances in this movie a little bit. Qui-Gon Jinn, played by Liam motherfucking Oh, please, Lincoln. talk about your favourite scene. Oh, we'll get to it. Oh we'll get to it. Immediately, these two actors... So, Liam Neeson has done Schindler's List, and this is a funny story I want to tell you. So, when Liam Neeson is doing Schindler's List, there is a moment in the first couple of weeks of shooting where he goes up to uh, Ray, F- uh, Ray Fiennes... And says to him... No, it's it's uh, Ben Kingsley. And he talks about this on the Spielberg documentary. It's a great documentary. Everyone should watch it. Um, it's really interesting. And he's talking about how... When he's doing the smoking scene... Which is the first scene you see of him... Once he puts the suit on. You know the scene where it's the, it's the yeah. dolly shot... And it's the beautiful light... And it's black and white... And he's smoking... And he's watching all the Nazis with the women... And he's smoking... And he's standing there... And Spielberg apparently is standing behind the camera... And saying... Now take a drag... Now let go, now release, now breathe it, and just take a long smoke. And Spielberg is like acting it out behind the camera for him. And Neeson goes to Ben Kingsley and says to him, what am I doing here? Like, I don't want to be his puppet. And Ben Kingsley looks at him and says, you have to understand, the great composer needs a great soloist. Let him guide you, and he will take you somewhere special. And I think that's really interesting when you look at Neeson's experience on this film because Neeson obviously puts a lot of faith in Lucas as we found out today he didn't read the script before agreeing to do it he was so excited about the idea of being in motherfucking Star Wars that he was like yeah I don't care I'll do it um, funny story about another actor not reading a script yep and just saying yes who was it it was uh, Bill Murray 
For did, what? Did you hear about this? No. Like, Bill Murray. For Dead Don't Die? No, he, he's in this film. He made voices a really famous character. He voices the uh, Garfield. Oh! Garfield. No, this story is so good. Do you know why? Because he read it was kind. Like, yes. Fucking John Kine. Ethan. Ethan Kine. I think it's Ethan. Ethan Kine. Ethan Kine. Which is the writer of of, a dozen. Family by the Dozen, I think. Cheaper by the Dozen. And he's the writer of Daddy Daycare, I think. Yeah, and which are, you know, comedies. It's not. It's not. It's not the Kine Brothers. It's not the Kine Brothers. But he'd say yes to it. A script written by Joel Cohen. Joel Cohen. Yeah, that's which so is who not... is the writer of? He's the writer of Toy Story, Money Talks, Cheaper by the Dozen. Yep, that's pretty funny. And Daddy Day Camp, not so, so yeah. not even Daddy Day Camp. Daddy Day Camp, the bad one. If you want to get a famous actor attached to your project, just name yourself Joel Cohen or Ethan Cohen, or you know Jim Jarmusch or Paul Thomas, Paul W S Thomas Anderson, as you keep oh, saying. Oh, Josh Lucas. Or jo- oh God. God, man. Yeah, so Liam Neeson is in George Lucas's hands, and I think he gives one of his worst performances, even though it's obvious at some points that he's trying. You, you say and, that. You and McGregor... You really say that. I don't... Mm, I, I think disagree. in some of the scenes... In one scene, you think he is In one trying. scene, I think I there's a kernel of something interesting. Uh, nope. Now, you and McGregor, who is coming off... He's done train spotting, obviously, which is his big breakthrough. Up to this point, he's mostly done small independent films. This is his first huge studio film. Now, what do you think of Ewan in this film? Well, I think he complements uh, Liam Neeson's acting perfectly. They are both really, really wooden. They both act in the same way. Yeah. Which is kind of funny because I don't, it feels like they're not acting at all. Yeah, they're he's just... coming off like Emma, A Lifeless Ordinary, Velvet Goldmine, and then he does Star Wars. Like, it's pretty nuts. Like, as a young actor, you'd be pretty excited. And I mean, and talking about young actors, the third lead of this movie, who is not introduced until 40 minutes in, Jake Lloyd, who I just want to say up front, I absolutely despise the way that the world reacted to Jake Lloyd and Ahmed Best and the way that people made their lives a living hell. I was so happy to see that Ahmed Best recently at the um, Star Wars celebration is doing well and that he's happy and he's able to look back on it as a positive experience. Jake Lloyd, unfortunately, is still having huge personal troubles and <laughs> I really like hope that he finds some solidarity in his life and is happy that he was able to go through an experience, even though the result of that experience was so negative. And anybody who listens to this, really, if you're a fan of something, think about the responsibility you have to not put negativity out in the world about something. Like, we're about to go see Joker tonight. I think we can both agree. The negativity surrounding Joker is so toxic. Uh, but... That's not negativity... It's like marketing, but it's it's not it's, it's it's just marketing. That's just marketing. But like, and I don't think we should talk about this in this podcast. Oh, I don't know. I think it's part of it. Like this film sort of started a lot of this stuff. This film, by far, is the most despised movie in terms of volume of people who disliked it immediately. Like this movie, no movie has been re-edited as much as this movie. No movie has been written about or talked about as much as this movie, which. Is one of the funny reasons we're doing a podcast because this well, is one of the most a, discussed there, movies of all time. There is this competition. There's a competition. Yeah. What? Last Jedi. 
Oh, a lot of people talk about that. We're going to get into that in The Last Jedi. A lot of people yeah. talked about that a lot of time. No movie, I would argue, has been as universally hated as The Phantom Menace. And the only movie I could even whoa, 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 think... Whoa, whoa. I'm pretty sure right now, if you look at in Reddit, Facebook... Yeah, but that's because they're more recent. They, they, all like, they all say, oh, the prequels are like better than the OT. Yeah, well, they are idiots. They are idiots. Anybody who thinks the prequels are better than the OT is actually a moron no I'm Don't sorry but like I, I think if you're listening to this you need to know our opinions on these movies and no, we do we're not just gonna think that give them good. our opinion alright we'll give them our and opinion they can give- so the movie starts the Jedi are gassed to death and then the Viceroy orders them to destroy what's left of them and they kill some droids which they for my kill, money they didn't kill the droids sorry the droids they shot the, oh, yeah okay <laughs> one thing that I think this movie does well the one thing I think this movie does really well is bridging the aesthetic of the original trilogy with the new trilogy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. It for does the first well scene. For 20 minutes. Yes, no. 10 minutes? Exactly. As soon Not as they get 20 to the planet, minutes, like 10 minutes? As soon as they get down to Naboo with the fucking animals, it completely goes and out the window. And it looks completely different. And that is also where we are introduced to Jar Jar Binks. Now, I think for the time, this is two years before Gollum, right? Two years before Gollum. Jar Jar is the first CG character that is created using a reference actor on set. I think Jar Jar holds up technically pretty well through the film. I think, in fact, most of the effects of this film, not the next two, of this film hold up much better than I would have thought. Having said that, the way the script is written and the way the character is performed makes him insufferable insufferable and the problem is that he is leading the Jedi for so much of the first half of the movie there's one moment where they the Jedi attack you know attack the droids that take leading the the queen right yeah they, they just go on and attack them right oh and, Jaja and, and, and then Jar Jar jumps yeah. down he he like trips and stuff like oh! whoa it's kind of funny but it's like why is he part of the attack plan yeah why is he there why didn't they just tell him to go hide yeah. I mean, he, they're out but, of the uh, water. No, 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 just stay up there. <laughs> just stay, stay up there. Stay Why don't you have to jump down? Oh, man, there's so much we could talk about. I mean, one of my biggest problems with this movie is that it's about an occupying force taking over a beautiful city. I mean, this was shot in, in Italy, I believe, and it's, it's gorgeous. Or Tuscany. Maybe that's for the desert stuff. I think Tuscany is where it was filmed. Now, George Lucas claims no, to be... Italy. A- Tuscany is part of it. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. It's Tuscany. Um, George Lucas was but saying... Tuscany is probably the backgrounds and stuff. They shot in a real city, like Star Wars shooting location. They shot in a real location. Now, the thing that I find frustrating about this movie is that George Lucas claims to be a student of history. As you said, he modelled a lot of the original trilogy on World War II, even going as far as to use World War II dogfights as a reference... He clearly cares a lot about real history and interpreting that through the language of his Star Wars franchise. Why, then, for this movie, is this narrative of an occupying force taking over a city treated with absolutely no tension? You don't see any of the civilians of the city suffer. You see absolutely nothing to indicate that these people are suffering. Well, let me stop you right there. You see some people, you know, like... Jogging away from it. Okay, Gabe is referring to a wide shot that's a CG shot (laughs) flying over the city where you see a group of maybe 10 people at a slight jog. Yes. Maybe. You can't even tell. I I hear people, I hear a lot of people arguing that you never see civilians. You never see, you know, 
anything. You do see some people in the join. background of a CG wide shot. Yeah, Gabe. Yeah, that's right. If this, I'm joking. You know this, don't you? If this was about the occupation of Paris, you'd see people starving in the streets. You'd see like them going up and begging to the <laughs> not, viceroy. Not if it was directed by George Lucas. Yeah, but he's done this well before. Like in A New Hope, you get the sense that the Empire is everywhere, and they're you know checking people at checkpoints. There's Star Destroyers flying around. Like, you get the sense that these guys are, like, ruling over the galaxy, and they're kind of a threat. When these guys roll into town, there's no resistance. They just immediately capture the Queen with absolutely no incident. Even though the Naboo people have... uh, Weapons! And they have a fleet. Yeah. They they send the pacifists. Yeah. But the Queen has... They have an army. Yeah. She has... Maybe not an army, but she has plenty... They have fighters. They have plenty of fighters. Yeah. They can shoot pretty important I mean, shots. They're, they're so. pretty quick to like join the Jedi's and fight back once they've already yeah. been occupied. They have plenty of weapons and stuff, so so they, they didn't even try when they first come in. Well, wouldn't you agree? An easy way to fix this movie right off the bat would be to make it a Seven Samurai scenario where a planet is going to be invaded and they ask the Jedi for help, and the Council says no, and the Jedi over here, and they're like, "We will fight beside you." And then everything works. Everything structurally well, I, works a lot uh, better. I don't think so. Okay, that's fine. I I, I think um, a Seven Samurai story, you couldn't do that with Star Wars. Because Star Wars is meant to be all about going to well, different Rogue places. Well, Rogue One does it in reverse, which is kind of smart. Does a, a very does similar though? Seven Samurai story. It's does very it much... Though? Yeah, I'd oh. argue it does. I'd argue it does. I want to talk about, about Rogue One right that's now. That's alright, we'll get to it. So, Phantom but, Menace, they get off Naboo... Pretty much without incident. There's no tension. Then they fly to where the movie completely stops for a full hour almost on Tatooine. Do you want to talk a little bit about this stuff? Tatooine? Yeah. What's there to say? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's almost a full hour that they're on Tatooine. I mean... It's an hour and 15 minutes. It's... No, sorry. It's it's 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Yeah, on Tatooine. Um, The only thing that happens is that they meet Anakin. Yeah, and I posed you the question. Yes. When George Lucas was writing the prequels. Yes. And we all know that Luke lived in Tatooine. Yes. That's where Tatooine is first. That is where he grew up. So, George Lucas is writing his script. And he thinks, where should Anarchy live? The exact same place. Yes. Not only that. So. In the next film, he goes and meets the people who raise Luke. Yeah, so. You... Half uh, this kid that has lived there uh, a yeah. couple of years of his life, his childhood, as a slave. As, a, as yeah, yeah, he lived as a slave. Yeah, but like he is my he is the world's well, happiest he's, slave. He's where my logic breaks down. I'll mention this again in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, yeah. Is that um, George Lucas thought? Well, uh, Anakin lives in the same planet where Luke is going to live in the future. Yeah. Which is like the worst hiding place for Luke. No, but at the end of Revenge of the Sith, you're forgetting that it's pretty clear that Vader thinks that the kids die. And that's why it's a... I disagree. I think it's pretty clear that he doesn't think that they're alive. And he definitely doesn't know that there's twins. Well, that's a that's an awful... I know, it's we're, we're, we're fixing plot holes that's for, just for awful. George, but... Yeah, I mean, why, not, did, not, why did Anakin need to grow up on Tatooine? Anyway, I don't think any of the Tatooine stuff is necessary. I think the pod race is massively Well, they, they need to meet... Anakin. Story-wise, they need to meet Anakin. And not only that, they need to have a reason to take him with them. Regardless or not, they are... 
I was like, I, I guess I want to take him because he is uh, the chosen. So why would you have one. Anakin? But I also think that he was trying to make it like, oh, he's trying to save a poor child who's a slave in this planet. Yeah, it's a white, it's a massive white savior movie, is what I'm trying to say. This don't, whole movie. Don't, don't don't bring politics into it. Why not? Disney's no. brought politics into it. Let's put them back into all the no. movies. I mean, we, we were talking earlier about how Attack of the Clones ends with Dick Cheney looking over his giant army that he's using to fight terrorists. Yeah. Um, man. Like, Palpatine's the main character of this trilogy, wouldn't you agree? Nope, not at all. Who's the main character of this trilogy? It's Anakin. I mean, in the first movie, he's like... Or Obi-Wan? No. Yeah, it's Anakin. Well, it, we kind of end with it's, it's kind of weird because point of view of this film, yes, is definitely Qui Gon. Yes, point of view of the next film, it's Anakin and Obi Wan. Yeah, but then point of view of the next film, it's Anakin and Obi Wan again. So, yeah, these two main characters, but the things that Obi Wan he kills Darth Maul. That's all yes. he does in this film. Yes, and Darth Maul wasn't needed for the story. It was maybe needed for the whole arc of the two seats but he's not of the what? he's not part of the story yeah no well he is but he's not introduced early enough to really be a, an ominous but threat no, he's not he's not directing the army he's, not, he's just true, there yeah. to pose as a threat for the Jedi otherwise you will have the Jedi fighting the droids and I we know that the, the Jedi fighting well, droids is really tensionless because the first scene look, the fight droids is like nothing I know we're jumping ahead but like when Darth Maul opens the doors looking all cool and stuff why don't they just shoot him? Like, there's like 20 of them. Well... Like, I know that he's a magical force wizard, but like, why don't you just try and shoot him? He's four meter away from... An Even expert. Han Solo had the good sense to try and shoot Darth Vader in the face when he saw him. But that's that's a smart character. That's yeah, I know. I love that. It's one of my favourite moments in all of Star Wars, that Han just immediately tries to murder him. <laughs> so good. Alright, now, they get off Tatooine, they go to... What I, even as a young child, knew was the worst part of the movie that I had to fast forward. Politics! Uh. Now, George Lucas always defends these movies by saying they're made for kids. What do you think of that <coughs> argument? Has he ever said that? Yes, 100%. He's said that many times. I thought, I thought there was people that liked it. That's, that's no, people do defend that position, but... George Lucas has defended it by saying that... A, they really should be seen more as silent films, which makes no sense... And B, that they, sh- they are made for kids. He, he, they're made to be silent films? He's said that several times, that like I think that they pull a lot from the language of silent cinema, which, as a massive fan of silent cinema, no, they don't. I can watch <laughs> Dunkirk with the sound with um, a black and white filter and the sound off, and it works. I, t- I tried watching the... Um, the black and white the cut. The Road. Yeah, how was it? I just don't like it. I don't like it either. I don't I, like the Logan black I, and white cut either. I just don't like it. Hmm. I just think that if you have a character act like he is saying something, mm. you either cut that out, yeah, or you put a title card in, and there's none of those. Yeah, and it's just somebody the character yeah. saying things. I know, I know, in Fury Road they don't speak much. Yeah, but yeah. the same things, and they, but you didn't hear anything. It's like, well, just, just, just. Uh, I know it's kind of cool, yeah. but uh, the movie looks beautiful. The colors of the film is beautiful, and and the. Small bits of dialogue mm. are pretty cool. So I, I just yeah. don't think there's no point. You feel it. like you're only getting 40% of the movie. Yeah. Um, Dunkirk um, is just... The, the Dunkirk edit is the first big set piece up to when the ship sinks. And it works really well. 
and it's just the one story thread of the guys on the beach and it's got title cards for a couple of bits but it's a really I'll show it to you after it's a really if you, if you guys want to go online you can google Dunkirk as a silent film and it's really impressive with how well it works I don't think these films work at all they're very expository they rely a lot on oh my God, conversation. So much there's so much dialogue now they go to Coruscant whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we jumped over your favourite scene oh what's my, what's my favourite scene the, the, the generator that leaked the what the generator that leaked Okay, my two favourite scenes. It's a, it's, a single, it's a single shot. This is... Yeah, okay. Yep. You and I have just watched the films of Akira Kurosawa. We have almost finished all of his movies. And by all of his movies, I mean the 20 most famous ones. Now, George Lucas claims to be a massive fan of Kurosawa. I have two scenes in this movie that blow my mind with how badly handled they are. And, and I love George Lucas. I think he's a genius. I think he has made some of the best movies ever made. Like Indiana Jones, Star Wars, THX, American Graffiti. I think either because of a lack of confidence, a lack of time, or a lack of will, a lack of will to spend money because it's his money he's putting up. There is a shocking unprofessionalism with the way that some of these scenes are handled, including... In the movie, there's a scene. I'm going to find what time it's at because it's so obscure and it's so weird and small. It's the scene when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are about to part ways because Qui-Gon is heading into town. It's 30 minutes into the movie. Exactly 30 minutes into the movie. <laughs> Qui-Gon comes out of a door. Obi-Wan is working on the hard... Uh, on the hyper, uh, hyperdrive? The hyperdrive, yeah. The hyperdrive, which That's is... It's leaking. <laughs> I, I, I just realised that piece of dialogue today and I'm like... Well, they've drained the hyperdrive The hyperdrive is draining. Yeah. But you look at it, and it's kind of like... It's a computer. It's it's like a computer. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I guess it has fuel, but... It doesn't matter. How Um, did it get hit? What matters is that Qui-Gon Jinn comes out, he says, we'll need to find a replacement buyer. And Obi-Wan's like, yes, master, I'll wait for your return. And these two actors have this chat. It's like 20 seconds long. There's a lot of 20 second chats between them. There's not a lot of dialogue between the two of them in this film. Which given the fact that Obi-Wan is the one who has to mourn Qui-Gon is kind of a weird choice. They are so wooden. This scene more than any other really speaks to me about what these actors were up against. Because the scene that I like the most of this movie that we have argued about a lot is when Jake Lloyd is sitting at the dinner table with Obi-Wan Kenobi, with um, Qui-Gon Jinn and Anakin just calls him out he's like you're a Jedi aren't you and he's like how do you know that he's like your laser sword I saw that only Jedis have those and he said what if I killed a Jedi and took it from him so Qui-Gon's testing him and I like that and Anakin's like no one can kill a Jedi and Qui-Gon's like yeah, I, I wish that was so it's one moment in the entire film where I see an actor of Liam Neeson's caliber acting against an actor who's giving an authentic genuine performance Jake Lloyd and they're locking eyes. They're in a real set with real props and a real kind of setting. A, a, a di- real Jaya. A, a real Ahmed Best. And like, they're at a familiar situation. They're having dinner with a stranger and he's asking him questions and he's curious like I a still, kid is. I still think it's... I think it's the acted. best scene of the movie in terms of performance. I still think it's awfully acted. It's still... It might be the best scene in performance It's by far the best scene in performance. But it's still one of them. It's still It's awful. not that bad. It's, it's really awful. not. You see the potential for still how... Like 3 out of 10. You see the potential for how good... Like, have you seen Jingle All The Way? No. Jake Lloyd's great in it. Jake Lloyd, like, was an accomplished child actor at this point. 
Liam Neeson is bloody Liam Neeson. Like, these guys are good actors, and they're given nothing. And that scene with him and Ewan really sums up to me just how difficult it must have been on set for these guys. I mean, we'll talk about it in Attack of the Clones, because I think Hayden Christensen in that movie is terrible, but we've watched the behind the scenes where I've seen him with Ewan joking around on set, and they're having fun! They've got chemistry! Like, none of it's on screen! And you've seen that <laughs> bit where he's directing Hayden, where George is directing Hayden, and Hayden has nothing to work with. He's, he's like, staring into George. In a blue screen his environment. eyes are, like, he's staring to his, uh, like, his teacher or something. Yeah. Like, to someone he looks lost. completely just can't take. He can't wait to just get off their costume and leave. He looks totally lost. It's really frustrating. I mean, this film is very frustrating for the potential of what could have been. Anyway, they leave Tatooine after uh, nothing happens. Nothing they else leave, happens. They leave Coruscant. We were talking about Coruscant earlier. Well, they arrive at Coruscant. Well, we Terrence talked about Stan, the politics already earlier. Well, should we talk about the pod racing at all? Oh, yes. The sound design, it's... Fuck. Yeah, like really? the two MVPs of this movie are Ben Burt, who did the sound design for all the Star Wars. A true MVP was George, John, 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 John Williams. Williams. John motherfucking Williams. I mean, I think Ben Burt cannot be overstated for the amount of character that his sound gives the film. Like we were talking about that scene with R two on the outside of the ship and how John and Burt just seem to be going all out. Like the music of this film is exquisite. Like as much as we're joking by seeing Jewel of the Fates at the beginning, it's one of the best pieces of music in the Star Wars franchise. Like mm. it's fantastic. Jo- John Williams is, you know, hot take. John Williams is an amazing composer. Now, they go to Coruscant and they meet pedophile Terrence Stamp. <laughs> I love Terrence Stamp. He's a great actor. He's so good in um, in the Limey. But he was interested. <sighs> he was very interested in meeting Natalie, Natalie Portman, Portman, which we need to check how old was Natalie Portman. She was seventeen. At the time of the film. Maybe time 16. Of he I'm was, share. She he, was 18 by the time how, the film came out. How old is he? He is 60 at the time of filming. How old was she? Just look at when she was born and do math. Oh, I don't want to do math. Uh, I no, just, because she, filming happened like a year beforehand. So, But she, but tell me how old, uh, how old is she? Once it was born. Give me an answer. When was she was seventeen? She was seventeen. So yeah, this man signed on to the film for the opportunity to meet Natalie Portman because, and quote, I had a massive crush on her after watching her in *Lay on the Professional*. He He is sixty years old at the time. Sixty years old. Now, Terrence Stamp is a brilliant actor. He's a massive yoga enthusiast. He's a really like sensible guy. This is one of the creepiest things I've ever heard. Now, what's really funny, though, is that George Lucas might allegedly be the hero of this story. Because oh, when, come on, when Terrence joke. Stamp... When Terrence... Uh, yeah, you tell it, you tell it. So, he, to- he tells me the story that he really wanted to meet uh, Natalie Portman. Portman when we thought she was 18 years old. And at when the time. they filmed the Senate scenes, Natalie Portman isn't on set. And She's Terrence, never on set. And Terrence is like, where's Natalie? Him, right? And he said, where's Natalie? So my idea was that George Lucas was planning to make the whole film like real effects. <laughs> real effects. And real sets. Real sets. And then he was going to build when, real spaceships. And then when he saw that, uh, when he saw that he was so keen to meet this underage girl, he decided to find a way to... to everything on blue screen. To show like, you know, two characters, you know, in, in the same space without having the two actors in the same set. And that's why he invented all this technology to keep Terrence Stamp from Natalie yeah. Portman. Terrence Stamp's never going to. That's my joke of the day. Terrence Stamp's never going to listen to this, but if you do, Terrence Stamp, 
you're you're a great actor. You're awesome in Electra. It's it's it's, 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 it's <laughs> a bit creepy. That's what I'm What's saying. What's your favorite Terrence Stamp that you can think of? I don't think I. I, I I'm gonna pull this. He's in Wanted. He's in, which you still haven't seen. Um, he's a good actor. Do you want to talk more about the politics of Coruscant and how the movie? Anyways, you say it's all politics, but it's half politics, half Anakin going into the. The Jedi The worst like, thing this he, movie does to he me. He is too old, but... Oh, he's in Priscilla. He's a legend. And of course, he's Zod. He, he is too old, but... He, Not Anakin. What is Terry he? Stamp. He's too old, which is Anakin, something... That, Anakin is too old. How old is he? He's eight. He's you know what eight. sucks? Is that that's because Luke says it. Yoda says it in Empire... But Luke's like a young, uh, uh, he's an like adult. Tw- twenty years old. Yeah, he's like he is twenties. Like it makes sense. He's in twenties. He's too old to be trained. And so, what do we see in Attack of the Clones? Six-year-olds being trained with lightsabers. This movie, maybe seven-year-olds, destroys kind of the mystery of the Jedi. They live in the middle of a city in this ivory tower with like a boardroom full of them in a circle. Like these are meant to be the ancient wise monks of the galaxy, and they live in like this sterile, gross environment that is just so disconnected it looks like any other building on this planet oh yeah Coruscant sucks because Coruscant sucks you don't know which building is important because there's so many buildings it's like and I get so I, I, get, I guess the mastering building is important not offended but I get so annoyed that in the next one they try to make it look like Blade Runner and I'm like they've done none of the groundwork to earn that kind of aesthetic the next film I think truly makes Coruscant a gross looking place but not in a good way it's not like a good seedy underbelly. It's just like a boring city. Anyway, they finally leave Coruscant they, after they 20 minutes. They don't take Luke, uh, Luke Anakin yep. into, the, into the Jedis to be trained. Yeah, they refuse. And Qui-Gon's and, like, and, fuck and, you, and I'll train myself. They, they also refuse to take to go to Naboo to assist on yes. the battle. So what does Qui-Gon do? He, wants, he trains the kid and he... Takes the kid with him. And he takes the kid with him. I will take you to the active war zone so you can learn my skills. Yeah, and then they go to Naboo without a plan. No, they, they no plan. The they decide on the way on that they're the going to ask the Gungans for help. Yes, I, th- I think the Queen knew already. No, she, like, asks Jar Jar while they're travelling. You know, and, and what I'm saying is that she already Where had a plan. Where is the Galactic Army? She already had a plan. Where are the clones? That's not, that's, not, not, that's not yet. But I like, know. I think she, she already had a plan to ask the Gungans, right? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. But. Um, Which is the reason she's kept Jar Jar with them. But it's time. still weird that she has to ask Jar Jar on the way. So she didn't, like, the Jedi didn't know the plan. On the, no. Until they were on the way. They had no idea. They had no idea. The Jedi like, you're just sending two of us? I mean, I, I mean, think after what's on the droids, it's, it'll be pretty easy for two of them. I yeah, don't, I don't but like, there's a Sith Lord. There's a Sith Lord. Like, really? Like, Kiati Mundi, Kit Fisto, none of these guys can lend a hand. Mace Window is really that busy teaching kids how to, like, read a screen. Like, really? Mace the Jedi Windows. suck in this movie. This movie really destroys the Jedi for me. Like, my favorite, my third favorite film of all time, my favorite animated film is Princess Mononoke. And have you you've seen Mononoke, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, my favorite thing about Mononoke in the first setup is that. The tragedy of it is that Ashitaka, who is cursed by this demon, who is going to take his life, needs to leave his tribe, and he is their next. He's meant to be their next, um, their next leader. He's meant to be the man who brings their tribe into the modern world. 
and he has to leave. He has to cut his hair and leave his tribes people never to return and abandon them and their bloodline is going to die out. The thing that really sucks about this trilogy is that it makes the Jedi look like idiots and it makes them look like they were so easy to kill despite the fact that they are a huge I, I force. Don't think, I don't think they are appearance idiots. They... Oh, Dude, we're going to get into it in Attack of Clones, but, but and the maybe fact that they in Attack of the Clones, but I don't think in this film our they... ability to for, uh, use the force has been diminished. That's revenge. No, that's attack. That's attack, attack, attack. It's raised because okay. Dooku tells Obi Wan. We'll get to it. Tells Obi Wan. We'll get to it. We'll oh, get to it. Okay. God, it's so bad. But anyway. here, here's the thing. I don't think they appear as idiots. They appear. They're just benevolent. It's boring. They're boring. You don't know what they are. The one thing they shouldn't be is boring. The yeah. one thing this film should not be is boring. Well, wait, wait, wait. Here's the thing: is that yeah. in uh, New Hope they say, "What? No, an, an empire." Yes. When they say, "I'll go and meet Yoda," I think they, they he's say, a great Jedi master. Yeah, you think of it, and you're like, "Oh, Jedi master." Yeah, it's the genius and of he's, that. He's, he's Yoda is so small, but like you think of the warden Jedi master. Yes. Like, so you get your idea of like what they used to be, and then you go in there, and it's just a bunch of guys. <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, you oh, get, you mean you in this film? In, yeah, in this film you get. They're just a bunch of guys there, sitting in chairs. They're just sitting in chairs. They're not. They're, they're not meditating. They're not practicing their skills. They, yeah, like like they like, should. That, be... It's really funny. The interaction to to Yoda. Uh, 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 you know that scene Samuel in Jackson, of Blood? Samuel Jackson. Yeah. Uh, what's his his interaction? Uh, what's his name? Mace Windu. Mace Windu. Like these are important characters, and they're just sitting there. They're so important. Like, hey guys, they're barely in the film and barely in the pre in the sequels. Um, you know that scene what in else? Throne of Blood where Macbeth, played by Tashira Mifune, finds the shaman who's like in the middle of the forest and he's like spinning that weird wheel? Or like in Game of Thrones when they find, uh, you know, Maggie. The, uh, the, the, and she tells Cersei Lannister the, the future of her children and all that stuff. The Jedi should live in like the middle of a forest. Nah, I disagree. In like a temple. You know Jedi Academy? Where like Luke's training the Jedi? It's perfect. I disagree. Okay, that's fair. I, th- I think Jedi's... Uh, doesn't they, they live in like... a city? Don't you think? It is kind of weird they live in a the city. Uh, so it's, it's kind of weird they live right next to the Republic building. Well, yeah, I mean, that's right. what lets them be wiped out so easily. But what the reason I bring up Mononoke is because why do you need to have 50 Jedi? Why couldn't you just have maybe 10? And they're like really rare. I, th- I think you can have... And they're dwindling. But you can have as many as you want. Really, in this film, you can have as many as you want. Mm-hmm. It's just the way they portray it. It's yeah. It's not so much the idea or how they are. It's just kind of like they just they don't do anything. Yeah. Uh, they just they pretty much are just in the ballroom deciding what to do with Anakin and and like only two of them talk. Well, three of them, Kin and the Mundo, say something, right? Yeah. And like the, no one is making decisions. It's only Jorah making decisions, and. I, I just think that the Jedi should have had, you know, it's it's Jedi Master. Something. Like, maybe you only have five Jedi Masters. You have a Suicide Squad one, introduction for each of them. No, but each one of them should have been so different to the, to the next one. Absolutely. They all should have been really important. You're going to have the designs. Are cool. Some can, of them look really cool. You can say everything about that. You can say that well, about a lot of design. A lot of designers worked on this film. But, yeah. but the thing. Um, is that you have five characters that are all very different and they're all very important in the whole trilogy. Uh, let's move on to the battle stuff because we yep. are running out of time. Um, so they... They go to Naboo. They reach Naboo 
they say we need to find the Gungans they're not in the Jar Jar goes off to the underwater city which can we just say I think the underwater city is the one environment from all three movies that still looks kind of cool and has aged the best I don't like it it's just circles it's just circles no they're like um, they're like underwater kind of flowers and jellyfish kind of shapes and I, I think they look really cool I, anyway like um, they go, Jar Jar comes back and says I don't know where the Gungans have gone and then they're they, like oh they got they, they, they go to sacred place they go to sacred place and then uh, the very next shot they're just there they're just there they just find them instantly I, what I, do, do you, tell, you tell me how how oh, safe, wow. safe I and we get a great scene with my favourite actor and character and performance from this film the great Brian Blessed as Boss Nass <laughs> he's so good I have the best Brian Blessed story to tell when we get to Return of the Jedi talking about I've actually forgotten the actor's name anyway tell us about the battle I know I know tell us about the battle so the fight against the Gangans yes um there's the coolest sequence oh when the battle droids unfold it's so good when the battle droids are deployed that alone is why this movie is better than Attack of the Clones the, 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 the Beast Wars is just great yeah it's there, all is no, there is no tension at all in that battle there's no tension in the, in the battle or in any of them but but like what's cool is that you, like what my reasoning why I think the droids would would have been a fine enemy to fight yeah in, in a well written yeah. series is that they are such a huge army yes they are easily manufactured just keep pumping them and out and you can just keep pumping them out it's, it's like the final battle of iRobot where people are like using Molotov cocktails and sticks to beat these machines like do something Right? Yeah. And it, it's really cool. But, like, that ending, that climax, half of it is good. That yeah. Darth Maul fight is kind of cool. The sound effects, the music, it's really good. Yeah. Uh, everything with Anakin in space, it's... it's Very, very common. Like, we were, we were joking when we were watching about how 90% of the way that the plot of this movie is resolved is purely by accident. Like, Anakin accidentally falls in the ship accidentally flies up to the enemy ship accidentally spins into the inside of the ship accidentally fires the missiles that blow up the middle of the ship yeah he didn't know that, that he didn't button. know that yeah. he didn't know that button was going to suit missiles yeah before that point what he was just in just laces Jar Jar accidentally destroys a bunch of droids it's it's really silly that like that's I mean there's so many ways to do this movie better but I think the biggest thing that sums it up for me is that this movie this movie just fails to capture the sense of fantasy and adventure that the original Star Wars films have. Like, the reason that we feel good when Luke destroys the Death Star is partly because he's finally accepted the higher calling of listening to the Force. It's not just about the fact that he blows up the Death Star, it's the fact that Obi-Wan communicates to him from beyond the grave, and Luke trusts his feelings, and he succeeds. Like, it's as much a spiritual kind of conclusion. Same with Empire. Empire is about... A spiritual defeat. It's about love being shattered. Return of the Jedi is about Luke redeeming his father. Like, all of these films used to have a deep spiritual undercurrent, which I think is why Rogue One, which is my favourite of the Disney Star Wars films, is my favourite. Because Rogue One also has a spiritual undercurrent to it that feels like a part of Star Wars. Anyway, I I care. We'll get to Rogue One. I I care if the movie's good or not. Oh, we'll get to Rogue One in, in four weeks and uh, it'll be really fun to talk about with you. Now, wrapping up, they destroy the, they destroy the droids. Qui-Gon Jinn is killed by Darth Maul. Yeah, that happens. It could have been really good. 
It could have been like in Lord of the Rings when uh, Boromir dies. I thought you were going to say when the elf guy dies in Battle of Helm's Deep. Yeah, it could have been like when Boromir dies. Which is an amazing But, but, but the, the worst part is that Qui-Gon the last thing he says, is something about Anakin. Oh, we haven't talked about this. So my biggest gripe with Hollywood movies, and it's weird that this and The Matrix come out the same year. I don't know if it's Harry Potter. I don't know what it is. But there is an obsession around the late 90s to the early 2000s, and it sort of has completely stopped in 2010 onwards, of a character who is the lead of your narrative being the chosen one. To me, it's the worst thing about Harry Potter. I think it's one of the worst things about The Matrix, even though The Matrix tries to subvert it. But, but The Matrix subverts it. That's the point of the film. I know. It's the not Matrix, something, that, it's okay, not, you're something right. they pull out of nowhere. Like in, the Matrix yeah. sets it up better than any of these other films. I, I think it falls apart the point in of the, the second uh, of the and, film. Yeah, of course. But at the point of the, the end is that he's... Like, that's the point we, of the end. There's one point in The Phantom Menace where Qui-Gon talks about Anakin's reflexes. But we never see yeah, them. We never seen that. Like he just says, "Oh, pod racing is pretty hard." Which, I mean, I guess you're hovering and you're moving to the left or to the right. It doesn't seem like the hardest. No, sport. It's, it, it's, it's just you dangerous. Said, you said that you said that uh, it didn't seem that hard at first. But when I when I watched it, I'm like, "This that's it. That looks really tough. That looks really." I tough. think it looks tougher in Ben Hur when they're wrangling actual horses that are like. Well, that's fucking. That's because CGI, not CGI. But yeah, like, yeah. But I like, I, I, if in the in, in if you're the gonna rip off Ben Hur, rip off Ben Hur. In the narrative, it looks pretty dangerous. It's weird that George Lucas for once didn't use giant dinosaur alien thingies, because they're everywhere in this. Film. Oh, he's going to use them. He's going to use them. We're going to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Now. Yeah, Qui-Gon's last words to Obi-Wan are, you must train the boy, he is the chosen one. And as we'll see in the second and third film, this narrative really, really impairs the power of these films. So, Gabe, having rewatched it, how many, what, what watch would this be for you? Like, how many times do you think you've watched Phantom Menace in your life? In my life? Over ten? No, no one near. What do you think is the film you've watched the most in your life? Or a spark. Yeah, right. Definitely. It would be up there for me. I think Dark Knight might be my number one. I, just Dark Knight I saw it. It would be definitely Terminator 2, Dark Knight, and maybe, um, what else? Or, or Empire or Star Wars. I'd say, um, Phantom Menace, I've seen it. The most of all the Star six Wars? Six times? No, no. Mm. No one here. Uh, when, I, when, when I saw it in the theaters, yeah, maybe. What movie one, have you seen the most in theaters? One or two times after seeing it in theaters. Mm. That's a funny story about that. Yeah, one or two more times uh, since that until more recently. Did you see the three D re-release? No, I didn't either. Like it's not not in theaters. I don't mean in theaters. I mean since I saw it in theaters when mm. I was young. I didn't see Star Wars that much when I was young. And then I saw I saw I saw it a bunch recently. Whenever a new Star Wars film comes yeah, out, yeah, 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 of course. Them. Well, that's why we started this podcast was because you want to watch all the movies. I want to talk about them. We thought maybe this would be an interesting opportunity for a podcast. Yeah, yeah. So you've seen it about maybe ten times. Ten. Let's times. just say yeah, ten let's say times. ten times. I think this is probably my probably given how little I watched it as a child compared to the originals. This might be my fifth or sixth watch all the way through okay it's the first I've watched it in a good four or five years has it improved in some ways in your mind or has it degraded I don't know I, th- I think after watching a couple of the recent ones I thought prequels would be better I just think they do some things better like what what would be one like, thing you like, 
I, I think the Darth Maul fight is a lot better than any fight. No, in the recent ones, no, I would give the Ray fight against Kylo and yeah, the Ray Rey fight in against Kylo. I would, give, I like I would give the Vader murder scene in um in Rogue One. Oh uh, yeah, well, well okay, give... fine. I'm comparing all that know, to I the know. Last Jedi, okay. specifically. Compared to the Last Jedi, Gabe hates so the better. Last Jedi a lot more than I do, and we'll get to it. I like think... it, it, it's better. It, it has... I'm excited for you to rewatch it because you haven't yeah, rewatched it in full it. since we saw it in theater. So yeah. we'll get to that in eight or nine weeks. Yeah, but no, they're really like Phantom Menace is really bad. Like, Jesus Christ! I, I just I was imagining like someone my age, if someone my, my age, if someone my age saw yeah. the original Star Wars in theaters, yes, and then by the time they, this came out, they were fifty or something, and they saw the Phantom Menace, they I, I they could have walked out. Exactly, they could have just walked out because it was such a shock of how. It's shocking how bad it. I'm going to put out a time. bonus episode midweek, um, interviewing my mother Heather Rose, who is a author and also a massive film fan, who saw the original Star Wars in theaters when she was 14 years old. I'm going to put that out so that you can hear the first-hand experiences of an original Star Wars fan, and you can hear how her opinion has changed over the prequels and also the Disney films. And that will be the next episode you hear. And next week, on the same day that this goes out, you will hear our next episode, which will be. Oh, yes. No. Yes. No. Oh, no. Gemini Man. Love Beyond... Oh, no. I forgot about that. At some point, we're going to do a Gemini Man podcast because I can't wait to talk about it. But our next Star Wars podcast will be... It's, it's going to be Attack of the Clones. It's Attack of, of the course. Clones. It's the next one. It is a film that tries to counteract a lot of the flaws with Phantom Menace. And <laughs> well, we'll talk about it next week. Oh, mate. Uh, thank you for listening. Please uh, feel free to subscribe for future episodes. We'll probably be putting up social media links if you want to follow other news. And yeah, we will see you next time and may the force be with you. Don't say that.